Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Matt Deacon. On the show today, the latest in the streaming wars as Disney Plus has a stellar March quarter. Meanwhile, Bloomberg places a bet on Britain's future. How's it going to compete with the rest of the UK press? Also, we hear from audio producer Arlie Adlington about the practical steps Multitrack is taking to make the industry more inclusive, plus tips for aspiring producers on how to apply for their fellowship scheme. And in the media quiz, we discover what announcements are shaking up film and TV this week. That's all coming up on this edition of the Media Podcast. In this week's news, the Pulitzer Prize was announced and Ukrainian journalists were honoured for their courage, endurance and commitment to truthful reporting. It comes as Al Jazeera journalist Shireen Abu Akli was shot whilst covering an Israeli raid in the West Bank. The publishers accused Israel of intentionally attacking the press, an allegation the country's denied. Here in the UK, the government's laid out the groundwork for how it plans to force the tech giants, so Google and Meta, to pay for news. Further details are expected from the Department for Digital digital culture, media and sport as we approach this weekend. And the Queen's speech delivered by Prince Charles laid out a slate of legislative changes for the UK media. Key bills include the Online Safety Bill, the Data Reform Bill and the Media Bill, which would enable the privatisation of Channel 4. Right, on with the show. I'm here with two media experts ready to debrief on the latest news shaping our industry. First up, it's the Entertainment Director for Heat magazine, Boyd Hilton. Boyd, uh, you've been following the BAFTAs quite closely this week, I imagine. Any standouts from the ceremony? Yeah, I was there. Um, my highlight was The Chase winning. Best daytime. The Chase is the greatest show on TV, obviously, as everyone knows. And I love the Steve Coogan VT that he recorded, in which he managed to refer to Piers Morgan's ratings or lack of them gratuitously. It brought the house down that moment, did <laughs> <laughs> So. 
that was the, those were the highlights for me. It's easy to align yourself against Piers Morgan, isn't it? That's always that's always good for a laugh. I think though the biggest bit of entertainment this week is the Wagatha Christie trial. Have you been tracking the tweets? Mm. Uh, coming out of the courtroom. Yeah, I sent it to Jim, the Guardian's media, uh, the guru, and he was patently very excited that he was going to be covering this this trial, and he's been tweeting. Do you know what? I think he needs to step it up a bit, because I want every single thing that's said in the courtroom transcribed, and he's, I don't think he's doing every single one. It'd be my slight complaint, but it has been absolutely brilliant to follow it. Fascinating. Yeah. I mean, it is amazing. As entertaining as you'd hope. For those of you who don't know, so this is... Um, Colleen Rooney, she believed, worked out that um, Rebecca Vardy had been leaking stories about her to, to the tabloids. And Rebecca Vardy has, is suing her for libel, which means it's up to Colleen to prove that, um, that all, all this stuff's true. But because of this, lots and lots of facts are, are coming out. And it's kind of an interesting bit, I thought, um, sort of revealing some of the ways the tabloids work, which might not be so transparent to, to the public at large, too. Liaised with actual celebrities to have their pictures taken and there's, you know, um, deals done. Yeah, although I think, I mean, yeah, there's been talk about how the paparazzi, you know, liaised with actual celebrities. But I think that everyone's known that for years, if I'm not. I mean, if you, going back to Princess Diana, Diana famously arranged paparazzi shots herself, pretty much all the people did. So I'm not sure if that's such a revelation. Honestly, but yeah, I mean, but it, to see the workings of publicists and journalists mm-hmm. and showbiz, it's fascinating, yeah. Also with us is journalist and media commentator Kate Bulkley. Hi, Kate. Uh, did you manage to catch the BAFTAs too? Yes, um, I wasn't there, though. There were two things that stood out for me. One was the amount of shout-outs about Channel 4 privatization were made from the stage. I mean, winners who are senior British television executives, you know, Steve McQueen, lots of people saying... This is the wrong move, government. Don't privatize Channel 4. It's doing a great job. So I thought that was interesting to me. And I, you know, maybe they'll listen, although I doubt it. Nadine Dory seems to have her own uh, mind about this. And then the second thing that stood out for me was that It's a Sin won nothing. And, you know, I've read lots of commentary and I have my own views about why it didn't win anything. But I thought it was a bit of a shock that it won absolutely nothing. It was uh, stunning that it didn't win. Uh, Boyd, was there a surprise in the room? Yes, Undoubtedly. All I would say is, first of all, it has won two BAFTAs. It won Direction for the Best Director, which is a pretty big award. If that was in the film BAFTAs, it would be like the third biggest award of the night. But such is the weird world of TV that directing is, is relegated, so to speak, to the craft awards. And um, editing. People do think that, you know, the whole of BAFTA, thousands of people gather in a room and decide to snub a show. But of course, every single BAFTA jury is a separate gathering of a specific jury for each category. So it's not like they confer and decide not give all of the five actors who were nominated, for example, any award. It just so happened that none of the juries voted for it. And I've been on BAFTA, been on juries for all the awards centers, and they do end up being slightly weird sometimes. They just, you know, they go in surprising <laughs> way, directions, put it that way. So I think it will actually be remembered much as I've loved the BAFTAs and they are very prestigious, I think It's a Sin will be remembered forever as a TV classic, no matter it not winning, apart from two BAFTAs. And on to our first story this week. Disney Plus has announced an impressive March quarter, adding 7.9 million new subscribers. Kate, this is kind of a big contrast to Netflix figures last month. What have you made of uh, Disney's performance? Well, Disney is being really, really strong out of the gate. None of the analysts thought they were going to get, what was it, 7.9 million new subscribers. They all thought, eh, maybe 5 million. That'll probably be good. So 7.9 was like, wow. The shares, however, have not really recovered. They're down almost 40% in the last year. I mean, it's just the whole streaming 
area is such a focus by Wall Street right now, by the analysts, that it's kind of shocking. But for me, I think the reason that Disney is doing so well is because it's Disney. I mean, they have these great franchises. They have lots of content. And of course, that's what gets people to sign up. Whether they'll stay, of course, is the question, but they're signing up. I think that the contrast with Netflix is interesting because, you know, Netflix has basically been the poster child for streaming. It's been the strongest player out there. And so the fact that they actually stumbled, and I think they lost 2 million subscribers in their last, and they're saying that they're going to go down more, is very telling about sort of where we are in the maturation cycle of the whole streaming business. It was very interesting. Alex Mann was talking, she's the CEO of Channel 4, and she was talking about, you know, their next, their plan to try to obviously avoid the government privatization. And I asked her, I said, what about with all this uncertainty about what's happening with the channel, how are you going to make deals with whatever the big tech deals you want to make are, like, for example, with Netflix and with YouTube, and we can talk a little bit more later about YouTube. But what she said at the time, when she said, what's really interesting for me about this is that the stumble of Netflix shows that this whole sort of program inflation, in other words, the amount of money you have to pay per episode for a, you know, a streaming show, which has been going up and up and up and up, can't continue to do that. Because one of the things that Netflix said when they didn't get as many subscribers as they have been getting is we are not going to spend as much money on content. So that's an interesting signal, I think, to the market. Contrast that with Disney, which obviously has a huge company and they have a lot more revenue levers, I would say, as a business journalist. In other words, they've got theme parks, they've got movies, they've got all this other stuff that they can ramp up. And as we saw in their results, the theme park business has obviously bounced back. Of course, it was coming from a fairly low level for the, during the pandemic. But, you know, that's coming back strong. The cruise business is coming. All that kind of stuff is coming back. So, I, you know, it doesn't surprise me that, that Disney is doing well in streaming. The question is, you know, can anyone really maintain this kind of momentum? I guess that's the big question going forward. I mean, Boyd, do you agree with Kate there? Is it, is it actually content, content, content? Is that why Disney are, are, are doing so well? Yes, probably. I think Disney has the massive advantage of a huge library. It has um, Star Wars brand. It has the Marvel brand. So it has those huge advantages over Netflix. Netflix kind of went, the strategy seemed to be a couple of years ago to sign up every kind of big TV producer, Shonda Rhimes, et cetera. I'm not sure it's paid off yet, really, because those big producers, Ryan and Murphy, you know, if it is another example, seem to have taken it upon themselves to produce some quite esoteric, not their most mainstream offerings, you know, whereas Glee was made by Ryan Murphy for Fox, you know, Shondaland's incredibly popular stuff was made for network TV comes in America. As yet, neither of those, well, they've provided for Netflix, have really come up with goods. Now, I, I personally think a lot of Netflix content is fantastic. My favourite show of all time is a Netflix show, The OA. But equally, it does feel now that week in, week out, it's rare to get a kind of genuinely unmissable show on Netflix, really in the scripted realm. Whereas if you look at Disney Plus, and I would say Apple TV Plus are doing a fantastic job as well. I mean, honestly, every every other week Apple comes up with a really, really first-class show. So it is all about content, I think, in the end. And I do think Netflix is having a difficult time with content, with it seeing scripted content right now. I'm looking forward to seeing you do an OA dance at some point, Boyd. Maybe I need to invite you to a, a media podcast party to see that happen. Look at that Netflix-Disney battle. I mean, Netflix is at 222 million subscribers, uh, Disney at 137. They're obviously still in growth. Is Netflix just 
a few years on, have they just reached a mature point, Kate, where, you know, they can't really grow any further and Disney's still in catch-up mode and it's got a few more years to get there? That's a very good point. The other thing is that Netflix has kind of run out of countries. One of the things that really kept the engine going was they were launching in another territory, another territory, another territory. And if you look over the past sort of couple of years, the main growth engine has not been the U.S., it's been other territories. It's been outside of the U.S., international. Um, there's no more countries for them internationally. I mean, basically, they've done it all. So there's that. Disney obviously has this huge brand. Netflix has a big brand, but you know, outside of the U.S., less of a big brand, if you see what I mean. It's an arms race. It's a, it's a content arms race. You know, how much content, what content, who has the best content, who has the content that's going to attract this next group of subscribers. I mean, remember, streaming television is just like pay television or cable television was when it launched. How do we create something that's going to be attractive? And again, if you come back to Disney, they've got this huge, you know, battleship because they've got different brands. ESPN's a huge brand. It's a sports brand, right? They've got different levers, again, that they can pull. Netflix doesn't have that, which is why I think, which I think is probably what you're going to get onto, which is why they're thinking now about advertising supported, because they've been only SVOD, subscription video on demand, right? And now, after having said, no, 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 we will never do advertising, they're now saying that they will do advertising. And of course, Disney, which of course came in later, has already announced that they're going to have an ad-supported tier by, I guess, the end of this year. So this is the next battleground. In other words, it's not just the subscription battleground now. It's also going to be the advertiser-supported battleground. And that's a different kind of market, right? Because people are watching in a different way. They're watching ads. They may want different kinds of content. Maybe Netflix won't just have one brand anymore. They'll have Netflix, I'm making this up, Netflix fantasy or Netflix drama or you know what I mean and then they can put ads against it so it, you know we're going to see an evolution here it's also interesting that Netflix has always made its USP you know that it drops all of its episodes of every show that it makes in one go you know they've been absolutely obsessed with that model it has been a, a big bonus for them and in fact it's changed the way that all the traditional channels you know BBC can't wait for everything in a box set these days and Channel 4 and Sky similarly Slightly questionably, I would say. Whereas the other streaming services, Disney pretty much only ever puts out a show a week of its big shows. You know, maybe they'll drop the first two to start with. Same with Apple TV Plus. Same with most of the other big streamers. They do go for the weekly event, funnily enough. For the streamers that maybe haven't got quite the content volume that Netflix has, those weekly drops do keep those shows in the papers or on social media alive, don't they? Whereas if you're Netflix, you historically have had so much content, you kind of drop the whole series because you're on to something next. But um, Apple haven't really got that volume, have they? Yeah, I think also it's weird because, you know, the whole people love having their TV shows talked about on social media. And then the Netflix model of dropping everything in one go slightly defeats that because everyone's watching it all the time. Whereas at least if you're dropping only stuff once a week, it gets everyone excited. Interestingly, they're doing more and more of dividing their seasons into two. They're doing Stranger Things coming up. I mean, they must be absolutely thrilled, Netflix, that Stranger Things is back because that is one of their bona fide iconic shows. But they're dividing this next season into two. And they did it with Ozark and they've done it with other things so they can at least get two hits of their big size. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Boyd. Like this whole move towards not dropping the whole thing at one time. I mean, it's classic television, right? I mean, this is what the model has always been on classic pay TV television. So it's like, you know, gee, gosh, the streamers are finally realizing that actually, you know, this isn't that different of a universe and the way to keep the audience 
attention and to, again, as you say, have some kind of feet or traction on social media is to create something that's a weekly event or whatever it is. And yeah, I mean, that's a very good point. What Netflix is doing in terms of splitting the seasons, it's not like they don't see what's happening out there. That's the way to keep their their name in the press and the shows alive for longer. Because that's always been the issue. I mean, broadcasters have talked about that for years. You know, you finish a series and, you know, the interest drops off. How do you keep that interest as the next season is being prepared and not launched yet? So, I mean, this is classic television economics and, and marketing tactics come to streaming. And a broadcaster that's uh, nudging its way into a little more streaming is Channel 4. Uh, they've just struck a deal uh, to wear a thousand hours of some of their hit shows for free on YouTube. Also, this agreement is quite interesting because it will allow them to sell the ads around the programs, which historically is not what YouTube have allowed. Boyd, can you tell us anything about the deal? What are we going to see on uh, on YouTube? Big shows like they're, they're kind of classic location, location, location. SAS, Who Does Wins, etc. Whole episodes of those going onto YouTube, as you say, with kind of advertising around the programs. I mean, it makes sense, you know, get get their programs out there and make some money from their library and sell advertising around it. They tried it before in 2009, that also with YouTube, but um, that deal fell apart. There was just confusion with with YouTube and them as to how they were going to uh, make the return on the programming. This is all part of isn't it? Channel Four, quite rightly showing the government that they can make money out of their shows by any way we could think of, you know, every single way you could possibly think of. Kate, boys are right, isn't he? I mean, Channel 4 are just trying to uh, launch as many new things, come up with as many uh, new statements to show they're, they're fast moving. Is it sort of too little too late? Oh, definitely not. I totally disagree with that. It's definitely not too little too late. And I, what I'd like to say about the YouTube deal is it's very different from the first deal that was struck by Andy Duncan, you know, a long time ago and actually fizzled out. I think in 2014, it finally was, uh, you know, benched. And the reason it was a bad deal then was because they got a big check, they gave them all their content and they had there was no other revenue stream. And they basically saw it as a way to kind of say, hey, look, here, we're, we're on YouTube. They didn't understand the marketing dynamic between the two services, you know, it was a different era. The, the thing that's different now is, as Boyd said, they'll be able to participate in the sale of the commercial advertising. They're actually going to sell the advertising around YouTube. That's very different. It's not YouTube selling it. It's Channel 4 sales house selling it. Okay, that's number one. Number two, the shows that are going on, as Boyd mentioned some of the shows, but they're going on 30 days after broadcast. Okay, so in other words, Channel 4 gets the first bite of the cherry. They're not sort of giving out, it's not day and date, right? So that's important too, because in other words, they're really, they're, they're understanding, they're leveraging their shows, if you see what I'm saying, in a way that's different than what they did before. And that is very different and, and I think a very smart move by uh, Channel 4. And by the way, this deal has been in negotiation since at least January. They didn't just do it last week. I mean, this has been a long gestation period. So I don't think it's like a knee-jerk reaction to, oh my gosh, let's think of something else we can throw back at Nadine Dorries. Commercially, I'm a business journalist. I've covered them commercially. They're doing really well. I mean, their advertising is up. They're, you know, they're not, they're not in the government dole. I mean, they make all their money themselves. I just think it's ludicrous that the government's trying to privatize them. Ludicrous. Boyd, what's the feeling from um, independent producers about Channel 4 now? They've sort of had a couple of weeks to digest the news. Do they think the battle is lost or do they still think there's an opportunity to keep it in public ownership? I think they're desperate to think that there is still an opportunity to change this decision. But when you consider that 
you know, what was it, 98% or something of the responses that the government asked for in, in their, when they were asking for everyone's views on what should happen were, were against privatising it and they're still going ahead with it. I mean, you have to start thinking, what can anyone do, really? And I think there's some criticism I've seen from certain producers that Channel 4 should have prepared for this better. I think that might be a bit harsh. I don't know, how can you prepare for what I think is a gratuitous, wrong-headed bit of politicking from the governor, particularly Nadine Doris. To be absolutely honest with you, I think it's spite, you know, that a few years ago, at the Edinburgh TV Festival, Channel 4 was then head of news, basically said that Boris, Boris Johnson was a liar. And I genuinely think stuff like that is, you know, it's it, it, it contrib- contributed to this ludicrous decision. I'm fascinated as to whether the Andrew Neil Show Commission that started, the Andrew Neil Show started last week, is a way of Channel 4 going, look, we can be a bit right-wing too. Now onto our deep dive for the week. Earlier, I caught up with audio producer Arlie Adlington. Arlie's a member of the steering team for Multitrack. That's the charity creating opportunities for underrepresented groups in the audio industry. He shared some of their latest initiatives, including the Multitrack Fellowship, uh, with its successful applicants get paid training and placements at leading audio production companies and the opportunity to pitch for real commissions. Multitrack is an initiative to provide really good and substantial opportunities for people who are trying to start a career in audio but maybe struggling to get a foot in the door. Anybody, I think, who wants to pursue a career in radio and podcasting should have the opportunity to do that. I think it's like in order for that to be true, we have to make changes about what is required to be able to even get that kind of like first rung. The fellowship is the initial thing that we came up with and we are sort of like expanding what Multitrack can do now. Production companies sign up to be partners and what that means is they will offer a one month paid placement, paid at the living wage for someone trying to get into the audio industry. The fellows themselves, they will get a minimum of two months of work. So they'll go for one month at one production company, another month at another. So it works quite well for the industry because it means production companies only need to be able to find the budget to support one month of a placement, but we can make sure the fellows get a minimum of two months. We provide a lot of advice and support and structure for what we want the fellows to get out of that time so the type of experiences that we'd like them to have the fact that they need to have a line manager and they need to have bits in place to make sure that the experience that they have is actually a really good one and during the the time as well they get one day a week where they're training usually it's been on a Friday and it means all of the fellows who are all at different production companies having their placements will come together for one day as a group we have a training curriculum which is delivered by a mix of people from the partner production companies people from the multi-track team and other independent producers and then the last element is that we'll provide some kind of opportunity for the fellows to pitch for a real commission they've been BBC documentaries radio documentaries mm-hmm. which the BBC has kind of ring-fenced a number of commissions in their commissioning rounds and the fellows have the opportunity to develop and pitch an idea during the fellowship with support and whichever ones get chosen to be made that's then a project that those fellows get to go and work on after the placement ends and so it means they've got a piece of a like great freelance work lined up an opportunity to actually produce something and get that full producer credit those are the kind of like core elements of the fellowship paid work 
training, networking, commissions. I mean, it sounds a great opportunity. I think you know, anybody's listening who's kind of been through the sort of dreadful media work experience churn and the challenges mm. that faces. It's a strange old industry, isn't it? Everyone's kind of replicates what happened when they started, but maybe forgetting that was 20 years ago yeah. when things were a bit cheaper or the world was a slightly different place. Some of the things that we were talking about a lot when we were thinking about coming up with multi-track and what we could do is like, you know, really obvious kind of legacy reasons why we have an industry that doesn't represent the population <laughs> that it's supposed to serve is things like unpaid internships or really low paid work, really unreliable work. There are lots of people in this industry that did manage and make a career even with those all those disadvantages. But there's actually loads of people that would never have even been able to begin doing that because they didn't have whatever financial safety net. They weren't being sort of taken under the wing of a like existing editor or commissioner who saw themselves in you. And therefore, I think there's a lot of kind of hiring in your own image and all of that stuff. Mm. Everyone that gets on the fellowship for multi-track, it's like, yes, they're from groups that are underrepresented in the industry. And that's one of the things we exist to do. But these people are really creative, talented, hungry producers. And so the companies tend to be very happy about who comes to their company. The way we try to do things at Multitrack, the way we try to think about how you recruit and how you think about the environments you're creating for people, hopefully kind of thought provoking for people that are involved. And, you know, and for all of us, it's like we're all really actively having these conversations about how the industry works and, and the types of environments we're creating and how we might be recreating, you know, inequality or unconscious bias that just exists in the wider world and so a company that becomes part of multi-track gets to also be part of having those conversations which you know by talking about it and thinking about it eventually that starts to lead towards incremental change and new ways of thinking about doing things. So if someone wants to apply to be a fellow or they know someone who would potentially make a good fellow, what do they have to do? What's the process? I think there's a deadline next week, isn't there? Is it Monday next week? That's right. May 16th is the deadline. If anyone wants to have a look, we're at multitrack.uk and you'll be able to find all the details there about the fellowship and how to apply. But we're basically looking for people of colour, people from working class backgrounds, people with disabilities who are trying to get into audio. You would be someone who can show that you are passionate about audio and this is something you want to do and that might be by your own podcast you've made, just stuff you've made in your spare time. A fellow will be someone that's not already kind of earning all of their income from audio. So they are still trying to kind of get that foot in the door to actually make it their job. That's the kind of person we're looking to apply. There's been people that have done multi-track before who hearing about multi-track was when they realised it could actually be a job and not just a hobby. And like, that's great. We'd love those people to apply. That was Arlie Adlington. You can catch the full interview if you're a Patreon supporter, where we cover some of the practical steps from production companies to podcast networks that can take to make the industry more accessible and inclusive. It was a really great chat, actually. And if you want to get it and all of our previous deep dives, all you've got to do is become a supporter on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash mediapod, patreon.com slash mediapod. Also, Multitrack, as we mentioned, is currently taking applications. You've got until Monday to get those in. To do that, just go to multitrack.uk slash fellowship. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? 
Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And on with the show, I've still got Kate and Boyd with me to cover some news in brief. Bloomberg Media set out plans for a major London expansion uh, and investment in Bloomberg UK. It wants to rival established press, including the FT and the Times, apparently. Kate, what does the expansion involve? And are UK readers pumped about Bloomberg? <laughs> I love it. Well, you know, Bloomberg is a force and people in the city obviously have the Bloomberg terminal. And so they're already looking at Bloomberg news. But Bloomberg has never really had a consumer push. I mean, that's never been there in their USP. So what they're doing is not only saying we're going to do much more about the UK, but they're also basically shifting from being a business to business type brand, right, for analysts and people who are tracking the stock market, to being a more consumer focused brand. That's interesting. The other thing about it is, remember, this is Michael Bloomberg's company. Michael believes in fair, balanced news. And what he sees happening in the UK is a lot of launches of things like, you know, News UK's Talk TV, GB News. And he sort of has come out and basically said, there was a wonderful quote, he said, the investment we're making in Bloomberg UK reflects our optimism about the nation's future and our commitment to supporting economic growth and strengthening civic traditions by creating good jobs in British journalism, providing news and information decision makers need. I think it's an interesting move. They're throwing a lot of money at it. Will it be a competitor to the FT? Well, the FT is already kind of business oriented, so yes. Will it be a competitor to The Economist? Yes, I would say. But I also think it's interesting about how it might stand up against some of these um, sort of more, uh, what to say, um, partisan news services that we're seeing in the UK now. Boyd, as Kate was saying, they think there's a market for sort of unbiased news. The more I kind of look at the talk TVs and, and the GB news, do most people really think that there is a problem with unbiased news? Don't actually most people feel pretty comfortable with what they get and think it's absolutely fine? Yeah, I think you're probably right in that. I read that statement by Bloomberg. I mean, even Financial Times, is that particularly partisan as well? I mean, I'm not an avid reader, but it strikes me, I don't think it strikes me, it's been pretty independent-minded. And then as far as those TV channels you're talking about, yeah, absolutely. It's interesting, isn't it, what's happening with UK news? I mean, to me... There's a small but very vociferous group of 
people in this country define themselves as by being in quotes anti woke, which has been a recent, you know, fairly recent phenomenon. Suddenly, lots of people have got pound signs in their eyes and thought, oh, I know, we'll cater to them. That's like half the country. And it's ended up being nowhere near half the country. And in fact, there's a big difference between buying the Daily Mail and believing everything they say and reading it online and then watching a TV show with a Daily Mail columnist or it doesn't necessarily follow that just because you read that stuff, you necessarily believe in it and then want to be fed more and more of that kind of very, very obviously opinionated stuff. The realisation is that you know exactly what these people are going to say. When I watch the Piers Morgan show, the problem with it is the reason why I think it's doing so badly now is because you just know exactly what his opinion is on everything in advance of actually seeing it. So it's just kind of a bit dull, really. Boy, do you think any of the talk TV stuff is sort of salvageable? Like, it looks pretty good. It's pretty well made. I mean, if, if they made Pierce a bit more entertainment-led and sort of stripped away all the everything must be anti-woke, do you think they've got a chance? Maybe, yeah. I mean, I think yeah, they do, if they do have a rethink of the content, they just need to get some better and more interesting presenters than... There are brilliant presenters out there, brilliant new presenters out there who don't who aren't brilliant because you know what they're going to say. They're brilliant because they're great journalists and they're naturally engaging people. So it could turn it around for sure, yeah, in theory. Well, uh, I've pitched to Scott Taunton and Co that they should uh, televise the media quiz. <laughs> it's the best way. Uh, it's the best uh, content that's on offer. It's programming which could transform the station. We will continue to dog food it here on, on the podcast. This week, I'm going to be describing three media stories where a major announcement has been made in the UK broadcasting world. All you have to do is tell me who the story is about. So three rounds. Uh, buzz in with your name if you know the answer. So Kate, you will say... Kate. And Boyd, you will say... Boyd. Right, question number one. Um, two giants have signed a deal for a UK sports joint venture. Who is involved? Boyd. Kate. Boyd. Got in there first. Boyd, who is it? This is um, BT and Warner Brothers slash Discovery. Uh, so this is, yeah, so this is um, a BT group and Warner Brothers Discovery working together and pooling BT Sport Channel and Eurosport. Uh, Kate, I mean, sports rights, expensive, but sports programming, potentially quite lucrative. Is this a good deal for both those companies? Oh, yes, I think so. I mean, BT, remember, got into sport because they were trying to get, let's say, a a sharp spear at the front that could say, hey, look, we have you have to sign up for our broadband service. So that's why they got into the sport business in the first place. Warner Brothers now merged with Discovery. Discovery has Eurosport, which is a, a sports channel. They bought the Olympics. So Discovery believes that from their DNA of being kind of a factual-based company, that live sport is obviously the ultimate factual, live, you know, engaging fan events. David Zaslav, who runs Discovery and now runs Warner Brothers Discovery, is into sport in a big way. They've done a lot with golf. It totally makes sense to do this. At, at one point, they were dancing around actually buying uh, BT Group or BT Sport. And so this is kind of a way to, to basically work together. So I think it's a good move. Okay, question number two. Which two major UK broadcasters have committed to leveling out the heavily male-skewed category of documentary directors? Kate. Kate, who is it? Oh, this is uh, BBC and Channel 4. They're, I guess, committing to 50% women directors in documentary, which is obviously great news. It's too bad it hasn't happened before, but this is always a good move to get more focus on DEI or diversity, equity, inclusion. So I'm all for it. Uh, Boyd, long time coming? 
Yes, very long time coming. It's in the factual documentary realm rather than just generally. I mean, I saw someone tweeted the percentage of uh, female directors in fictional, in scripted stuff, and it was unbelievably small. It was just shocking, you know, like single-figure percentages. It's a great move. It absolutely should have happened ages ago, but they need to do more, to say the least. Okay, a point apiece. Uh, final question, question number three. Uh, who has the BBC named as the new Doctor Who? Boyd. Boyd. Uh, who, who is it? It's Shuti Gatwa from Sex Education. It was a really good PR reveal, wasn't it? I mean, it's funny, uh, they sort of Instagrammed it out and there was a, a bit of response saying, oh, what a really uh, small announcement for Doctor Who. There used to be big shows revealing that who the new Doctor was. But it worked really, really well for them, didn't it? Yeah, it, it was fantastic because they knew that Shooty himself would be at the BAFTAs because he was nominated and that he was presenting an award as well. And Russell T. Davies was there, of course, also nominated. And the two of them kind of seemed to arrive together and it was fantastic. I've, I spent an inordinate amount of time on the red carpet myself just staring at them both having a whale of a time. <laughs> uh, Kate, are you a Doctor Who fan? Are you going to tune into the to the new Doctor Who? Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely a Doctor Who fan, although I wasn't really that much of a, a fan of the last Doctor, Jodie. I, I mean, I like Peter Capaldi. I thought Matt Smith was fantastic. And Jutti is, you know, a rising star. I mean, he won a Broadcasting Press Guild Award a couple of years ago in 2020 for sort of what he was doing in sex education. I think it'll be a very nice new direction for Doctor Who. So I think that's good. But yeah, no, it's a great move. So I'm looking forward to it. Well done uh, to Boyd. Two points to one. Uh, you win uh, an audition to be Doctor Who number 15 in a couple of years time. <laughs> Just before we go, as we've got both of you here, uh, Boyd, any recommendations about what we should be watching or uh, listening to at the moment? Yes, they're not paying me, honestly, but Apple TV Plus is on a massive roll. As I, you know, Shining Girls, which is the thing they're on at the moment with Elizabeth Moss of The Handmaid's Tale fame, probably the greatest actress in the world right now. She's phenomenal in it. It's a kind of serial killer thriller, quite twisted, dark, but beautifully made and relentlessly fascinating. Loads of twists and turns. It's, it's, it's absolutely brilliant. And Severance was the TV drama of the year so far anyway, also on Apple TV+. Plus. So, and, the, you know, um, Slow Horses, I, mean, I just can't, can't, it, it is ridiculous, the run they've got, they've got on the moment. But Shining Girls particularly is my current show of choice. I love Severance. Uh, I saw um, Brian Stelter, who's CNN's uh, media correspondent, say that he watched the first, let's like seven episodes on double speed and then watched the final episode in normal time, which was I was both shocked about and then slightly disappointed that maybe that's what I should have done for Severance too. You've got to be concentrating, haven't you? It's it's not the speediest stuff. Yeah, I'm shocked by Brian. I mean, Brian seems like a great guy, but that's a shocking way of, of doing it. Just it shows that how little time he's got. It's too too much uh, content to to, to, to to make note of. But yeah, that has to be watched and digested and studied and thought about. And Kate, any big media moments you're going to be looking out for or, or things you'd recommend? Funny that Boyd mentioned Slow Horses because I just got finished watching that and I thought it was brilliant. I mean, I really have loved that. I think it's a great show. But I guess the other thing, I'm a sci-fi fan, so I've been watching the Star Trek Picard thing, which I think is on Paramount. It's hard to keep track. I'm in the US right now, so Paramount is where I get it. But it's really hard to keep track of where all this stuff is. I think that's the other thing about streaming is that not only... Do we have a bounteous uh, of choice available? But you know, how do you remember where everything is? I think that's the next uh, the next thing. So I'm still waiting for somebody to come up with an app.
app that goes across all the different streaming services and says, hey, this is what you want to watch right now. And this is a way to get around having to subscribe. There's a free trial. You know, this is what you need to do. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm, all my money is going to go to all these different streaming services until they all launch ad-supported tiers. Of course, that'll be the next thing. <laughs> Boyd, we've talked about that as a problem before. Uh, in the UK, Picard is on uh, Amazon uh, Prime or on Prime Video. Also, what's quite good, which I've managed to see, is the new Star Trek Strange New Worlds, which is a sort of more episodic version of Star Trek, if you didn't fancy something that was sort of a long mm. one ten-part story. And I think that's going to be on Paramount Plus when it launches in June in the UK. Is that right, Boyd? That's right, yeah. You've got the yeah, exactly, yeah. And where can people keep up with uh, your writing, Boyd? Every week in Heater Magazine, in good old-fashioned print, still going, um, at your local uh, news agents or supermarket, uh, and my Pilot TV podcast as well. Uh, and Kate, uh, what about you? So I'm a media commentator for Broadcast Magazine. Uh, you can see it online, but I also think that they do a print edition. My latest article was actually about NFTs, which might be something we talk about in the future on this show. Great. I'm looking forward to a, a media podcast, NFT. I think it could be... The saviour. Suddenly those Patreon plugs won't be so strong anymore. And in the absence of NFTs, if you're enjoying the show, you can help us continue to cover the media news each week by becoming a patron of the show. All you've got to do is sign up at patreon.com slash mediapod, as well as getting our deep dive with Ali. You'll get a load of other uh, deep dives as well. Perfect to graze on if you've got uh, a spare uh, few hours. Alternatively, you can take out a trial for riverside.fm. That's what we use to make the show. It's a brilliant studio quality recording app good for podcasts or for video casts go to riverside.fm uh, and use the code mediapod riverside.fm and that's it if you haven't subscribed or you, you just popped into this episode for the first time subscribing is the best way to get us it's all free you can do it on apple Podcasts, spotify google wherever you get your podcasts just press that subscribe button or the follow button my name is matt deegan the producer was phoebe adler ryan with support from matt hill it was a rethink audio production i'll see you next week Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.